and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Armchair Producers, episode 77, in fact. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the arcade cabinet collector, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy. I don't think only one makes me a collector. Shut up. <laughs> no, I wouldn't mind collecting. I mean, you know, if I had a, a lot of space. A lot of space and a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Money's a thing. Like I was looking today at a, I noticed some, you know, when you buy anything, like Facebook all of a sudden knows you've bought something and so now your yeah. feed is now flooded with ads for the thing. Yeah. Uh, and so tonight I was getting ads for people who are auctioning pinball machines and like $10,000 for some of these machines. Yeah, there's some big money in those apparently. I did see a last action hero one for $3,500. I was tempted i mean that's a lot yeah. of money for a pinball machine and i don't particularly care for pinball that much but like mm. it would be cool because i love i think we both like that movie yeah yeah and i do appreciate pinball i i do enjoy dabbling in it from time to time even some of the digital stuff on like uh the consoles and things it can even be fun just doing that but whoa, not enough to lay down 3500 that's 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 a big slice of cheddar Mm. All right. Well, shall we get straight into the meat and potatoes of this episode? Back on, because this week we are talking about um, a film I think I'd forgotten that I enjoyed as much as I did. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I always think back to this movie and go, yeah, that's good. And every time I watch it, I'm like, wow, that's better than I remember it. Very much so. It was, um, I, I can't remember the last time I saw Points Over Film this week, for those who are playing from home. Which hopefully are most of you, um, is Point Break, the 1991 Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze surfing slash bank robbery film. Yeah. Um, directed by uh, Catherine Bigelow. Bigelow. Yep. Written by Catherine Bigelow and apparently uncredited, but also written by her at the time husband and collaborator James Cameron. Which, yeah. um, not just Catherine Bigelow, who was like, a fine filmmaker, but I think it explains the edge that this film has. It really takes it above the the level of what one might expect of a early '90s action slash heist film um, about surfing and skydiving. I don't know if I would necessarily attribute that to Jim Cameron at all, because when you look at Catherine Bigelow's um, filmography, it's generally pretty gritty and dark. You know, you look at. Um, she did The Loveless, Near Dark, um, Blue Steel, then Point Break, Strange Days, The Weight of Water, K-19, which is possibly her most average movie. Um, the Hurt Locker. And there's always been that. She's definitely got a, a way that she likes to tell her stories, I think. She is solid. Mm-hmm. A solid filmmaker. Yeah. Um, I think she's a, a good filmmaker, and I, I was... One of it, I know a lot of people didn't like the Hurt Locker and thought that was kind of a charity Oscar. Um, and but again, James, our camera should have got it for Avatar, which I would not have agreed with. Yeah. Um, uh, but I just, I mean, if you think at the time, James was, James Cameron was coming off Aliens, uh, Terminator 2 came out the same year as his film. He moved on and made films like True Lies. Um, you know, uh, the guy was on like, the hottest, and then after that, of course, a little film called Titanic. Um, huh. it, Hottest of hot streaks at the time. And I just think, um, while I think Catherine's a highly competent director, a very good director, I actually 
about myself wanting to go back and watch Zero Dark Thirty after watching mm, this film. Same actually, yeah. Um, I think James is both a great director and a great writer, which I'm not sure I would say Kathleen. I, I, I would say Kathleen's quite on the same page, and I'll probably get shouted down for being a misogynist or something. As a writer, if you look at her credits of writing, Near Dark, Blue Steel, mm. um, Loveless Earlier, Equalizer, a TV show, and a movie called Undertow in 96 that I've never heard of. As a writer, she's a great director. I would put one point of umbrage on this, and you said that Jim Cameron is a great writer. He is not a great writer. He is very good at reconstituting stories for the masses in a modern-day ideology. Like, you know, there's not actually great writing in the Terminator movies. It's fantastic movies, and he just kind of goes, all right, I've got a shit ton of exposition to tell in the first one, so let's just make it basically a chase sequence. So the adrenaline is constantly going, and they're able to talk, and it feels like it's amazing. But then you look at like the writing in Avatar, it's like, okay, this, this movie is set years and years and years and years and years and years in the future, there is no way that someone would reference Ranger Rick. It's 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 something that uh, Sigourney Weaver's character pulls out. It's like, no, come on, come on. I would say, I think. Let me rephrase. I think. Well, I guess it depends what you call a great writer. I mean, one might say, I think Aaron Sorkin's a fucking great writer. Just Whedon at his best is a great writer. Quentin yes. Tarantino is an incredible writer. Yes, and at his best. Um, I guess James Cameron is, I'd say James Cameron is maybe not on the same level as those guys. Mm. But when it comes to blockbuster Hollywood movies, there are very few people, Spielberg would be one, mm. but James Cameron I think you could put in the same class as when it comes to writing um, really high-quality Hollywood blockbuster films. At that point in time, I mean, yeah, okay. I, Avatar, yeah, I think Avatar is possibly the weakest thing potentially he's done since Piranha 2. Um, <laughs> I think it's massively overrated, massively mm. overrated. The fact that it got anywhere near the Oscars mm. for anything other than special effects is, is crazy. But I think at the time, like I said, we've come across, he wrote a, Rambo, First Blood Part 2, which is a solid film. I yeah. watched it again recently. Aliens, The Abyss, um, Terminator's in there, Terminator 2, into True Lies, into Titanic. Uh, Strange Days as well, which is the other film you mentioned that Catherine Bigelow, which is a highly yeah. underrated film. Mm. Um, the guy was flat out knocking scripts out of the fucking park for 10 years there. And uh, yeah, I think this film's dialogue, go back to Point Break, mm. it, has, it, has, it is a lot more fun and mm. a lot more funny and a lot more engaging than it has any right to be. Absolutely. There's, it doesn't get to at all to the point uh, with the dialogue and the, the snappiness of the dialogue of something like Shane Black particularly in Shane Black's sort of like primo time, but it's got that kind of element to it. And uh, I think kind of referencing using Shane Black as, uh, a, as a reference point for how this movie comes about is kind of similar because um, they've got that, it's a gritty story. Like the first Lethal Weapon movie is like Martin Riggs is a genuinely fucked up, broken character but they've, they've got these little bits of comedy in there and they're just the snappiness of the dialogue between them. And you get little elements of that, not to that degree, through um, uh, Gary Boosie and Keanu Reeves' interactions and the, the bromance that 
so quickly but so beautifully gets built up between Keanu and Patrick. It's it's really well done. I think how I would rate, just to finish off our Jim Cameron thing, is he is one of the very best still in the business to be able to be the whole package. He writes solid scripts. He directs solid movies. He produces great movies. He knows how to kind of pull everything together to really get that package good. And you can definitely feel his touch on this movie. I think he was, I mean, again, not to disrespect Catherine Bigelow, who's a very fine director. I just think he's, his writing helped elevate this film, um, as I said, to a point it had no reason to be. If someone had said it's a film about a bang of surfers who are bank robbers who go skydiving and a guy called Johnny Utah who, like, is an FBI agent who has to infiltrate the surfy gang mm-hmm. to, like, take down the bank robbers, you'd be like, that sounds fucking cheesy as fuck. And the like, remake was... Which I watched as well. Sort of, you know, I think if you can take some A-grade talent, Uh, they can take B material and, you know, disguise it as A material. And there's talent all the way through this. So we've covered the writing. You've covered it. Gary Busey is in this film. And this is Gary Busey edits some of his, doing some of his best work. Not playing a bad guy for a change, which is so weird. Um, Keanu Reeves in his first real action Hollywood blockbuster type role before we think of him now as like Mr. Blockbuster, right? But like in, yeah. in you know, the early nineties, he was coming off, you know, uh, the Bill and Ted films. Um, I think, you know, he'd been doing some uh, more Shakespearean type productions, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He'd done a lot of art house stuff basically. So this, and now, you know, there was some, you read about it, there was some doubt about whether he was marketable enough to actually headline yeah. this film. Which is hindsight, you go, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, you, you read the trivia on IMDb, but they were talking it to people like Matthew Broderick and Charlie Sheen. Yeah, and jo- Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, I could see pulling this role off. But but um, Matthew Broderick and Willem Dafoe, apparently, you're like, whoa, no, it's thanks. It's so weird. It's, uh, he's a great director, don't get me wrong. a great actor, don't get me wrong. Willem yeah. Dafoe is a wonderful actor, but he, no, as a, as a leading man, as a young FBI agent playing a surfer, I don't think so. Yeah, it would... It, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking of they they because I I you know I I find it impossible to actually think of Willem Dafoe as young, ever. I just cannot picture him as a child as a young actor. So the it idea should be the streets of rage. We started this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he didn't he looked older than what he actually was. He's always looked older than what he what he was. But he's you know he's a handsome guy. But the idea of you know, him playing a 25-year-old surfer dude, it's like, wow, they would have had to do some rewrites because that, no, no one's going to believe that. I wouldn't have thought so, but it, it, that was sort of where Keanu was at. So this is Keanu's big breakout into blockbuster mm-hmm. action films. On top of that, we have, of course, Patrick Swayze, who was a bona fide star at this point in time mm-hmm. after Dirty Dancing. I think Roadhouse came out a year or two before this. Yeah. This came out just before Ghost, so he was he was really cresting on a high right there. He was hot, hot, hot at that point yeah. in time. And the, and you've mentioned that they have this incredible bromance chemistry between the two of them, which again, kudos to the casting director for sort of getting those two. And again, Keanu and Gary Boosie have this great this great yeah. chemistry between the two of them, between the, the, the veteran cop and the young upstart who started out not liking each other. Yeah. Very similar in a way, in some ways. To to the, the uh, chemistry between 
um, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover in the uh, in the yep. lethal weapon. So it was very familiar mm. um, like chemistry or sort of tropes at this point in time. Yeah. In amongst them, we have our connection to last week. We have John C. McKinley playing the captain. Yep. Uh, who's obviously very disapproving of his, you know, the way his, um, his charges are going about this case. Um, yeah. We have uh, Tom Sizemore in a very small role. Um, yeah, I forgot that he was in there. And then suddenly he pops up and goes, oh, shit, yeah, that's right. Laurie Petty, the woman of the 90s, the, the woman who was everywhere in the 90s in films. Yeah. Uh, Tank is Girl in, herself. Tank Girl. She was in Dumb and Dumber. Um, you know, uh, she's playing, of course, the love interest, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for music fans, there is a very young Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers playing one of the uh, thug surfers who beat up Keanu Reeves in the beach. And, like, um, you're like, oh, wow, he's so young. Yeah. Um, and so, but all of this just seems to work, right? Like, it's, um, it, 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 it all, I mean, the chemistry between these guys is so important mm-hmm. um, to the point where, I mean, I have heard theories of an almost homoerotic relationship between Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. Now, I can't see it myself, but mm. it's an interesting way to analyse the film. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, I think it's th- – this was – you know, when you think about Patrick, uh, Patrick Swayze at this point in his life, he was possibly the biggest heartthrob out there, um, especially with, you know, co- just coming just before um, Ghost as well, where everyone fell in love with him. Um, you know, this role was, it, it kind of stands out as quite different to a lot of his other stuff. And I am so, every every time I see some of his things, like Roadhouse is, yeah, it's a, I would qualify that as a top quality B movie. Absolutely. It doesn't, it isn't well remembered now. Yeah. Um, and it's honestly not very good. And I should know, actually, this film came out after Ghost. Ghost came out in 1990. Point Break in 91. Yes, of course. Yeah. So you're 100% right in the sense that that actually strengthens your point, though. So it was coming off yeah. Dirty Dancing and Ghosts. And people, again, I don't think Ghosts is well-remembered today. But it was a huge hit in 1990. I mean, oh, yeah. Goldberg won an Oscar. There were songs like The Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody. Yeah. was a huge, huge hit from the movie. Um, he was hot, hot property. Patrick Swayze was possibly one of the biggest stars in the world at this point in time. Yeah. And to go from that to being the bad guy, in, yeah. in is, is quite a bold choice in a way. But the word in the street is he did actually um, uh, audition for the role of Johnny Utah, but was mm. cast as Brody because he liked skydiving, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, anyone who's done sky, skydiving, as soon as you see Johnny Utah skydive for the first time and that transition from, oh, fuck, to, wow, awesome, everyone goes through that and it is amazing. You've done yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I did it for charity. Uh, still, when I was back in the UK, I, did I would not love that. to do it again because it's it's amazing. Okay, well, it is almost a year to your birthday next year. I'll start saving for it. But my point, though, one second is um, with Patrick Swayze. Every time I look back at it, even his performance in Roadhouse is solid. I don't like the movie, but his performance in Dirty Dancing is great. This is great. Ghost is great, and I really fucking loved the way that he portrayed the creepy pseudo culty guy in Donnie Darko. He was a fucking good actor. That's kind of, I love that the, the, um, 
trajectory of his career. It's like, um, I think he was in Red Dawn, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Then it was like Dirty Dancing, and he was a huge star, Roadhouse, Ghost, Point Break. Hit, 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 hit. Nothing happened for 10 years. Then he was in Donnie Darko, then he died. Yeah, it's so <laughs> sad. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great missed opportunity, I think. I mean, maybe it was just personal choice of him choosing different things, but, um, you know, it's, I just kind of look at him and kind of wonder what if with so many other potential roles because he was really good at being able to bring something out and the levels that he goes to as the character of Bodhi are fantastic. He is this bodacious, you know, surfer guy. Um, he's kind of zen and... Incredibly charismatic, almost cultly like. Yeah, and that definitely comes across in so so many of the so like the the fireside conversations that he has with Johnny and and the rest of his crew and things like that it's and the way that um uh, Laurie Petty's Tyler character talks about him so sort of like oh yeah he can set he can smell that a mile off and he'll he'll take you to the edge Johnny and it's like yeah it's 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 a cult like thing but the for the first like 45 minutes of the movie you really like this fucking guy and even, I mean, I think that's the thing all the way through the film is you kind of like, you don't, he is a very atypical villain. He's not your moustache twirling, you know, really? villain who ties the, the damsel in distress to the railroad tracks. So he kind of does in a way, because he does kidnap Laurie Petty's character. But yeah. even at the very end, you got you probably, it's hard to remember now because the, the end of his film is so iconic in a way. Mm-hmm. But you probably are almost as much on side for him, in a way, but it's almost you're on side for his relationship with Johnny, yeah. as much as you are for Bodie. But he is so charismatic. Um, you, you, if you, the film kind of, in some ways, reminded me of a little bit, and this mm. is a stretch I'll pay, but um, was Heat. I was just actually thinking that, especially with the um, with the heists. The heists. I mean, we think about um, Robert De Niro's character in that, and um, Tom Sizemore again. Um, and Val Kilmer, uh, you know, especially Robert De Niro's character, he is the bad guy, right? He's a bank robber. He's a violent criminal. Yeah. yeah he's essentially the hero of the film, the protagonist at the very least. And you're like, you have yeah. a very conflicted feeling at the end of that film when they, we have a final confrontation with him oh. and Al Pacino. Like, I guess you're happy. I mean, spoilers, if you haven't seen Heat, it was fucking 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you're a little bit sad that he gets shot in the end, but, like, you know, yeah. uh, and then also just um, the charismatic and likable bank robber is an unusual film trope. Yeah, but um, it, he is so competent in selling it and his um, relationship with the, all of the actors around him is so good that you utterly believe it. And, you know, it's... You know, it's been parodied in Hot Fuzz, where you know, yeah. shooting up into the sky, going Aah! because you can't take the shot against the man you you've got, you know, you've built a friendship with. Actually, loved him. He loved him almost. Yeah. You know, is that is that a platonic love? Is that somehow romantic? Yeah. I mean, I go, like I didn't see it myself, but you can interpret that however you like. But there is an actual love between these characters, and he could not yeah. shoot him at that point in time. So I do find. This film does, just to go take a dive away from the love fest that it's been so far, this film does strain credulity at several points in the film. I mean, first of all, in the raid where um, Johnny and Gary Busey's character 
raid the uh, the first group of surfer thugs they think might be the bank robbers. So, oh yes, and, with, uh, yeah. with War Child, War Child, and, and Gromit and these guys, and they turn up, and there is Keanu, Gary Busey, and two other guys. Yeah, and potentially, I they think these guys could be the most dangerous slash infamous bank robbery gang going around at the time, and you take four guys. Oh have, yeah. Have you seen the American police before? <laughs> are, are you familiar with how they work? I mean, like, there would be a fucking, you know, platoon of fucking cops for that kind of rate. The fact there were already four guys, nuts. I'm sorry. That strain cricket pulled me out a little bit and go, come on. I know this needs to happen for the story, that, you know, the things that we need to happen to happen. But that was like, that strain credulity to me. The other part was like basically, when we have Keanu and Gary uh, Busey taking, you know, chasing after, you know, the, the, the dead the former presidents, the ex-presidents, what do they call themselves? Ex-presidents, yes. Ex-presidents, sorry. Um, the ex-presidents uh, after the, 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 the second bank robber we see, um, obviously they get away. Even when we have a famous scene where, where Johnny shoots his gun up in the air because he can't shoot Bodhi. Why yeah. don't they just have an APB? Out on these guys because Johnny knows exactly who they are. Yeah, he knows. Look like he knows a bit. What? Why is he? You know, why is he? You know, he, he going after them? Fucking him and Gary Busey are going after them solo mm. the whole time. It's like, uh, yeah. And then the idea that Keanu would, but they, they actually they go skydiving together. Like, <laughs> wh- why would Keanu ever agree to go skydiving when he knows Bodie is a a bank robber and he knows that Bodhi knows he's a FBI agent so yeah they keep up this pretense of the fact that they pretend they don't know who each other are for this one last skydiving trip why would you no way you would put yourself in that situation because you just know like I mean I mean obviously he doesn't get killed but the logical thing to do you'd be like these guys are going to fucking kill me while I'm skydiving with them that would be the easy so that was a bit like why would you do that? Like, why would you? And he says, like, hey, come come meet us and do this thing. Why wouldn't you just have a fucking squad of cops mm. turn up and arrest the fuck out of everybody? And again, I know this is what needed to happen to get the film, the plot to move along. It's like, eh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. I guess I kind of just went along for the ride. I, I totally get what you're, what you're saying. But for me, it was just... They they could have played up a little bit of that cat, cat and mouse thing because there's there's subtle elements of it like there's that that uh, meeting of, sort of like what are we gonna do uh, we're gonna we just gotta run aren't we Bodie and they're sort of like no I know what to do with uh, with the FBI agent it's fine and then him going and just kind of forcibly getting Johnny out of the flat like I said like let's get some pants get some socks and things like that so I'm like oh he's yeah, he, he wants to just take his friend out, but at the same time, he's forcing him to. And you get that brief little moment where Johnny tries to go for his gun, but he doesn't get the chance. And the kind of pseudo or implied Russian roulette of the bad the bad bag that you think, oh, it's not going to open. There's not going to be a shoot in there or anything like that. And it just ending up being this exuberant out, outcry of fear going into absolute elation as they're coming down and they're all working together as a team and you do kind of go okay i don't know where they're going with this now because we've just had the revelation that they know who each other is 
but they're still playing it off and they're coming together. And then the the real kick in the balls of him saying, hey, Johnny, I want to show you something. And it's just this. And the look on Bodhi's face as he's doing it, it's like he's ashamed of himself. It's like, okay, that I'll, I'll pay it. They, they, they played that really well. They did that reasonably well. well. I guess the, the part that didn't work for me is like, if his plan was, let's go to Mexico and take the money and escape. Mm. Why did they need to have that thing with Johnny at all? Like, why did they need to kidnap Laurie Petty at all when they were because free? Because reasons. Reasons. Because the, the film, the plot <laughs> needed it to happen. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm being a little bit picky. It's like, And if I can just give one last slug in the guts to this film. Mm. It was the 90s, and I would say there were probably less Australian actors in Hollywood in the nineties. And I think today, I think finding an Australian actor in Hollywood today would be pretty straightforward. There are so many of them. Yeah. Even if you don't want to actually fly the second unit to Australia, to film a scene, mm. you want to film it in California. Like they did the final scene in this film, at supposedly at Bell's beach in Torquay, which is a couple hours from here. Mm. Um, you know, if you don't want to fly to Australia and get to, to get a second unit shoot, fine. Um, you don't want to fly Keanu there. Fine. Surely, find yourself some Australians in Hollywood who could do the accent. <laughs> I, I, I think until Quentin Tarantino's accent in um, Django Unchained, this was, <laughs> these might be the worst Australian accents I've ever heard in a Hollywood production. Uh, and I think Quentin's in the conversation with them. They're pretty bad. Okay, he comes back in! Uh, well, for a great many years, basically, all of it... The, the idea of Australia that was being pimped was Crocodile Dundee. That was it. So, sure. so like, you could, you know, I mean, as I said, I mean, uh, surely you could have found someone who could do a better version of the accent than that. Um, the other part, I mean, it, it, this is just a great, I mean, and maybe you've had this because obviously growing up and spending a lot of time in, in London, not mm. growing up, but having spent a lot of time in London, mm. you've probably had this experience where they shoot something in London and you're like, Hang on, that's yeah. no way to do that, <laughs> you know. Or I mean, I assume they, they shoot so much stuff in London, they probably shoot in location there a lot more readily than they would here. But having been to Bell's Beach a few times, I'm not a servant, but I've been there. Mm. It looks nothing like that. Not even remotely close to what Bell's Beach looks like. Oh, but this was in 1990. So, um, you know, things can change pretty quickly, Travis. I, I grew up in that part of the world. <laughs> not in Bell's Beach. The talkie's just um, not too far from where I... Like, no, it looks nothing <laughs> like that. And so uh, I guess, you know, for the 99.9% .9 of people who saw this film, they wouldn't have a fucking clue what Bell's Beach looks like. Yeah. But, I mean, it's... Because um, so few films are ever set in and around where I live. Yeah. You, you are very critical and, you like, when <laughs> you're a ghost writer, you're like... That's not Texas. That's the you Yanks. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you can't have a superhero at doing things in a place called the you Yangs. It's just doesn't make any. It's like you know trying to have an epic fight between God and the devil and having it set in the the French town of Brest. You know, in, in fucking Wollongong, mate. <laughs> yeah, there's just some places where it's like you know what. Location-wise, this is perfect, but can we change the name? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, like, so there's a, occasionally our films shot here in Melbourne are rare, but occasionally we see them scoot from here to here, and you're like, mm. 
it's kilometers away from there, but yeah, so it's a, it's a minor gripe. The accents are horrible, and they have no excuse for the accents. They have a very reasonable excuse that no one would really give a shit what Bell's Beach looked like. But knowing and having been there, I'm like, come on, it's not really. Yeah, but it is a must say the end of a film. Apart from the fact the unconvincing accents and mm. knowing the real location looks nothing like what they shot, mm. it's a wonderful way to end the film. It's and a it's, fantastic ending. Just that yeah. really vague. Did he get away? Did he not? Get, according to James Cameron, he did not. He committed suicide. Yeah, um, but um, it's a wonderfully vague way to end the film, where so many of these films would have ended up in a, a shootout. Yeah. Or something like that, but it just that final scene just did reinforce beautifully again the bromance between him. He's hunted him all over the world, and come the opportunity, he's got him handcuffed. Yeah, Bodhi can't kill Johnny, and Johnny can't take Bodhi in. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, uh, a lesser movie would have probably gone, Oh, you know what would be great? This is the moment where Johnny becomes a better surfer than Bodhi and they both go out to to ride this big wave and as they come in you know Johnny saves Bodhi from the water like what Bodhi did at the start of the movie so it echoes that that would be amazing and then he arrests him and they're like no no just no leave it it's, it's you don't a need to answer every question and this is again where I think we're again the writing takes this film to another level Whereas it, I, oh, I think this film did um, spark many imitators, uh, the whole extreme sports thing oh, that came oh, thinking, I'm thinking of films like Terminal Velocity, which starring Charlie Sheen a few years later, and Gary Busey. Oh, um, so the films where, had, or Cliffhanger to a lesser extent, you know, like had a, an extreme sports angle on, or Hackers, I think maybe, owes some of its heritage to a yeah. film like Point Break. Um, it's that counterculture kind of movies. Counterculture yeah. sort of spinning into a crime thing. Yeah. Um, Terminal Velocity, I think, has a much straighter line, but it, became, it was certainly it spawned many imitators. Mm. Um, and I think, again, always, usually the original is better than, than, than most, but the talent involved in actually creating this um, screenplay, yeah. I think, is what, and, you know, the, the balls to actually kind of finish a film like that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, maybe a lesser director, as you say, would not have had mm. or wouldn't have had the kind of clout to get that past the studio. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, on, on paper, you know, Johnny becomes a better surfer and, and rescues Bodie and takes him in. Sounds like a fucking great ending, but, you yeah. know, um, it wouldn't have filmed anywhere near as well. Yeah, yeah. One other, one other sort of thing I'd like to sort of point out in this film, uh, from a technical perspective, is how good is the camera work in this film? It is this, this you can I I would love to actually I'm gonna look into it. Um I might not do it live now, but so much of the so like the, the color usage as they're filming it, like the particularly like the, the sunrise and sunset sequence where it's so, like so heavily starchly kind of orangey kind of hues and things like that. That's so iconic I or so recognizable as something that um a lot of those more serious action movies use like um oh god all of the references have just completely gone out of my head but um you know that idea of going back to heat you know there was that kind of uh color palette that they had for it throughout the sort of the blues that were just just covering everything and that sort of stuff there was elements of that coming in and the the surfing 
uh, footage, it just looked great. I mean, none of the the waves were sort of like, oh my God, that's a monster of a wave and they're riding it. That's awesome. But it still looked great. And you were getting these good close-ups of the um, characters doing these moves and just resting and, ah. Oh. I would also like to call out the foot chase after the bank robbery between Johnny and Bodie oh, while his foot dresses were yeah. raining. Like, it, it, it's it's an incredible foot chase. It's almost like a car chase, but on, on I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, but it's so brilliantly shot. Mm. And you, you can find some details in, in the trivia section on R&D about what they did. They used some special camera shit mm. and they borrowed some steady cam stuff. But um, just the way it was, it was shot was just incredibly exciting and visceral and you felt like you were right there. And, yeah. I mean, it's become... That kind of thing again. I think it's many films today probably owe a debt to Point Break. I'm oh. not saying nobody had done a foot chase like this before. Mm. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I haven't thought about it too deeply. But yeah. I think it, you, know, you look at films like the Bourne films, where this was kind of a mm-hmm. standard thing, like jumping over rooftops in the or the James Bond films yeah. that you parkour. Yeah, um, was that um was that uh, Casino Royale that did that? I can't remember. But um, one of the James. Uh, no, it was um, the start of uh, the Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace. Yeah. Where using that sort of parkour, jumping over rooftops has become a trope in its own. But I think this is kind of doing it very early on in the development of that kind of technology that will allow that to actually happen yeah. and be shot in a convincing way. So it, that, that chase is one of, I would say, one of the great chase scenes in, in cinema history. I would agree, and um, I've just I just searched best foot chases in movies, and the top hit was five best moved movie chases by Volta. Um, there's Point Break, Apocalypto, Casino Royale. There is one in that as well. It's I don't know if it's one of the best. Uh, Raising Arizona and The Bourne Ultimatum, and the only movie out of all of that that predates. Um, Point Break is Raising Arizona, and it's only by four years, 1987 to 1991. So, I haven't seen Raising Arizona, so mm. can't comment on that one. But um, it was certainly it, it was memorable, and of course, as it was also oh. come back again to the scene where he um, shoots hello to uh, uh, the, um, the 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 muse of a show. Um, <laughs> the shooting up in the air scene obviously helped. Um, yeah, uh, you know. Make it tie tie the knot around it. Yeah, uh, I'm just looking at a couple of other ones, and some of them are kind of saying like Fast Five and oh yeah, District Thirteen. That one is basically a, a a parkour movie. So yeah, that has got some pretty good ones in it. That was a good one. Uh, interesting. Speaking of Fast and Furious, one of the IMDb items, trivia items says that. Fast and Furious was a remake of this, or and I'm like, wow, okay, I haven't seen Fast and Furious, but um, and maybe these films again. That's probably to extend it out again. So, you know, extreme sports, car racing, probably not a stretch to say. Yeah, I, I guess so. That's I hadn't thought of it like that. It's it's almost like you know, some someone saying, oh, Underworld is a remake of Romeo and Juliet. It's like, yeah, it is. Very basically, yeah. There are, I say, there's only seven stories in the world, or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. Apply that logic to anything, but I actually had never seen the Fast and Furious. I've only ever seen one of them, and it, I didn't like it. And it was like about number seven, I think. Okay. Well, you see, you've got to watch from the first through. Otherwise, you really don't get the subtleties of the performances. Speaking of subtleties, now 
you went the extra mile this week and you watched the 2014, 15? 2015. 2015 reboot slash remake. Is it a yeah. remake or is it a reboot? Uh, it's uh, a remake or a reimagining, I guess. Um, yeah, 2015 reimagining of Point Break. And um, this is the story of a young FBI agent who infiltrates an extraordinary team of extreme sports athletes he suspects of masterminding a string of unprecedented sociopathic corporate heists. They use a lot of big words in that that do not. Yeah, How what makes, what makes a, intelligence in what this makes movie. a heist sociopathic? Oh no, I was reading that wrong. That says sophisticated. Okay, <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> I I retract a three percent of my <laughs> cynicism. Uh, yeah, so this is. Um, it's not at all a surfing movie, which, you know, is a very, very loose way of referring to the first point break. And they decide to adopt this idea that point break is in reference to your breaking point for X, Y, or Z. And they are really, in this movie, they're really, really pushing um, this kind of economical climactical kind of viewpoint of the world cannot keep going the way that it is. We are doing extreme things. And this group of extreme sports athletes are making the, doing these heists in coordination, which uh, with something called, let me see if they, uh, yes, the Ozaki eight, which is um, apparently eight death defying challenges and if you can complete all eight of them you reach a true level of enlightenment etc but you have to give back the notion of uh, ozaki who is very lazily introduced into the story is um, another extreme sports athlete who is famous for kind of having this zen-like give and take of the world uh, with the world and these, this group, they do these heists to help give back. Like they steal hundreds of thousands of dollars and from, a, from a plane that's flying over and they dump it onto a, a poor area whilst they also do uh, an extreme skydive or something like that. So it's sort of a Robin Hood approach. Yeah, kind of. I think that's giving it a bit too much credit, but it's along those lines. And... The only star in this movie that, well, the only stars that I know of, um, there's Edgar Ramirez. Who, who I've never heard of. You, you mentioned last night, he was like, oh, it's Edgar Ramirez. I'd never heard of him. Yeah, so he has been, he's kind of the Venezuelan alternative to Gerard Butler. And the way that he plays this role, the way that the role is written, and looking into the, the trivia, my God, they really wanted Gerard Butler for this, but they weren't able to get him. Um, he said a lot about the script if Gerard Butler won't do it. Well, no, I think it was uh, scheduling conflicts uh. for that. But it's got a few other people in it, like Ray Winston takes over the role of Pappas from Gary Busey. Um, there's Teresa Palmer in it. Australian uh, Teresa Palmer. Yeah. Um, but... 
generally a very underwritten character, no way near the kind of depth that uh, um, Laurie Petty was given. Um, let me see who else there was. Uh, oh, yeah, Delroy Lindo is essentially the substitute for John C. McGinley, um, but he's not as much of an asshole um, because social reforms have happened. Um, and that is pretty much it for actors. So there is no one in there that, no disrespect to any of them, you would qualify as blockbuster actors or true... It's a D-grade cast. I mean, Luke Bracey plays um, Johnny Utah, who is also yeah. an Australian, um, and I've never heard of him. He has Maybe. been in some stuff. He was in a G.I. Joe movie. Yeah, um, he was Cobra Commander, so he was hidden behind a mask. <laughs> That's a lot. And I'm, yeah, I've, he was in Hacksaw Ridge, apparently, um, mm. which is a great, great movie. But mm. no, I've never heard of him before. I've never seen his face. Mm. But this movie was hanging its hat not on quality story or trying to deliver some kind of eco-warrior message or anything like that. It was hanging its hat on saying, we are doing amazing stunts. And apparently, according to the trivia, they, the vast majority of the stunts in this movie are real. They are getting people to actually do them. And there is undeniable um, impressiveness in their, their effort to do that. But everything, where we were praising the original Point Break for everything coming together and working as one cohesive unit to tell a, a great story and elevate it up, this has not got that. You do not have the bromance between Bodhi and Utah in this. You don't have that kind of bizarre kind of pseudo father-son relationship between Utah and Papas. There's not that emotional connection um, between Utah and the love interest, which is Teresa Palmer's character in this version. Everything is so lackluster. This is a paint-by-numbers movie that deservedly failed at the box office. Not only is the CGI poorly in implemented into these stunt sequences, but it goes back to like the early 2000s where they just thought bombastic was all that we needed. And that has thankfully generally died. There's not much of that idea of we're just going to show them lots and lots of action and not have anything else around it and not bother casting the right people for these roles or giving them an opportunity to imbue these characters with more stuff. No, this is cardboard characters and a cardboard movie attempting to be something more than it's ever, ever going to be. Which um, is pop, not surprising pop, considering it. Pop quiz hotshot. <laughs> which remake is the worst? Point Break? Total Recall or RoboCop? Oh, because I rewatched the remake of uh, RoboCop recently as well. Because I watched the first, the original re uh, RoboCop as well. Um, hmm. I, I would go so far. I haven't seen Point Break one, so I guess I can't say. But the Total Recall remake was kind of tragic. You know what? I'm going to actually say that this is the worst of those three. It's, it's a tight one between that and the remake of Total Recall, which just doesn't make any sense anyway. Um, but Robocop, out of those three, is the hands-down hands hands winner. And 
that is saying something about those other two. <laughs> <laughs> so that is um, Point Break 1991 and 24-15. So... Round of applause to George for going the interim mile this week and watching the, uh, the piece of shit remake. I wasn't going to do it. Um, we watch this shit so you don't have to, ladies and gentlemen. Pretty much. So uh, I am. I have taken over the reins of the the link for the next this week and next week and after week. I am. I am going to be at George's mercy for a while to come. Um, <laughs> but this week we are going to, uh, as announced for people who watched last week, we are going to follow Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. So we are going to follow him to. Probably ooh, maybe his most famous role, and that is 1999 The Matrix. I was really hoping you were just going to suddenly curveball and just go, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Sorry, I was going to say, David Estill still. The Matrix. The Matrix, um, which is going to be an interesting discussion. We talked a little about it this week, last week, but this is one of those films that, um, aside from being a, a landmark action science fiction Mm-hmm. Um, film. It also, the actual story itself has been, you can interpret this film to mean whatever the fuck you want it to mean. I've seen Absolutely. extreme left-wing political groups use it to go, this is the most left-wing film that Hollywood's ever done. I've seen extreme right-wing groups uh, co-opt huge chunks of ideas of a, of a film itself. Uh, we talked last week, Lily uh, Wachowski has come out and said that this is actually about trans people and I guess uh, you know, a, 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 trans, a film about their journey and their struggles mm-hmm. to some degree. And you can see that once you run that lens over it. So mm. um, that's something that we will talk a little bit more about next week. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, Mr. Kinglake. Mm. Um, and um, uh, one thing that I, we uh, at some point might even be able to, now that I've figured out the technology behind it, if um, any of our uh, bot listeners um, is um, <laughs> interested in it, we might even be able to at some point, maybe not The Matrix, be able to organise a watch along, like a watch party, mm. on on Zoom of a particular film. It's probably fucking illegal, but what are they going to do about it? <laughs> There's a lot. Oh wait, there are six people watching our movie on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I wouldn't do it on Facebook. It'd probably get pulled down. But you know, <laughs> um, we can we can you know if, if so. It's here's the call out to anybody who listens to our podcasts. Yeah, uh, you can find us on Fried Brain Productions on Facebook. Uh, George is on Twitter under Fried Brain. You can find me on Twitter at Evil Trav. Mm-hmm. Let us know if a, a watch party of something like The Matrix, it would be fun to do a watch party of The Matrix, but something like that would be something you'd be interested in. Yeah. Okay. Now, I have another new release movie that I would like to talk about. Wow. Go for yeah. it. It is Project Power. Okay, and this is the new Jamie Foxx Netflix movie, yes? It is, yes. And um, I didn't go into this looking at any trailers or anything like that. I just saw it pop up and say new, and I thought, okay, it's 10.30 at night. Why not? I'll pop it on. And I was pleased to find that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is also in this because I like him as an actor. He's a very likable character. Um, And it's kind of a superhero-ish movie, I guess, because it's um, essentially about... Uh, it's set in New Orleans, and it, I always appreciate people going, you know what, we're going to set our movie in one of the other many cities in the US. So it's nice to have a slight different change instead of New York or LA or it's 
those kinds of places. And this is a story about diverging paths or converging paths um, surrounding the, there's a group that seemed to be essentially using New Orleans as its own little microcosm laboratory to test a new drug that allows the user to actually activate innate um, abilities within them that are apparently in one throwaway line seem to be generally focused around they have some kind of connection to the animal kingdom in some way. But there is also a chance that you could pop this pill and you just explode because your body cannot handle it. And um, I think that's kind of an interesting concept. Um, and then we have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is a cop who is secretly and against uh, department regulations, is using this. He has the ability to essentially have uh, bulletproof skin, and he is using it to help take down robbers and thieves and uh, any criminals in the New Orleans area who are utilizing this drug for nefarious purposes. Um, meanwhile, the Jamie Foxx character seems to be a bit of a hunter-killer, shall we say. He's introduced in this role of he's looking for the guy and um, he is going up against um, these sort of like people who pop the pill and get gain these abilities. Um, but Jamie Foxx never uses the um, the thing and uh, the pill. And throughout it, you get these mixed messages and mixed reports of Jamie Foxx might be the source of this drug. Um, he might not be. He might be the person who's using it uh, and uh, kind of causing all of this trouble. So there's a bit of a mystery around that. Interweaving with that, the, the one character who kind of brings um, the, those two others together is a young girl and I'm just going to look up her name because she was actually really really good and I've, I don't know if she's been in anything else before but um, it was she was really quite impressive uh, I've heard some fairly mixed messages about this film I've heard some people say it has some interesting ideas but it, it trails off fairly quickly and becomes a bit dull towards the end mm. I've heard people say it compares They've sort of compared it to sort of some of the uh, X-Men films, considering the idea you take the pill and you kind of get some random-ass power rather than... It's only for five minutes. It only lasts five minutes. So that does, um, in the action sequences, quite often you, uh, in most of them, like any time Joseph Gordon-Levitt takes one, you see him kind of click a timer on his watch and a lot of the criminals do the same thing. So there's this sense... Uh, the sense of urgency and agency in all the fight sequences is like, okay, this is probably only going to last five, maybe six minutes long, but I'm probably going to be taken for a ride. And if you can kind of divorce yourself from the kind of questioning it, it's a fun ride to go on. But um, the actress that I'm thinking of is uh, Dominique Fishback. And uh, it looks like she's not been in too much. Um, she's, Seems to be fairly new on the scene. Um, she was Maybe one of the for. Yeah, but she was very good in the role. Um, this to give to give you an idea. This I would probably put this. I've now since watched the Old Guard, and I would put this on a quality level similar to that overall. There, it, there are elements where it doesn't get it right, 
but this is a damn sight better than some of the previous direct-to-streaming movies that were being produced. And they're, they're, they are stepping up their game. Like we've talked about it a long time. It's at the start, when streaming services were very fresh and new, it was almost like the bargain bucket. You get a movie out, but you're lucky if it's going to be a B-grade movie. Now you're getting pretty consistently B to high B, low A grade movies are starting to come out, and you were seeing that evolution of the quality in them. Um, I'm seeing evolution of production value. I am not seeing evolution of quality. So the production value of a film like Old Guard was good. That parts of it would get very to very good. Uh, um, of the actual the rest of it, the, 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 the writing, the acting, the actual uh, film itself was good. Um, yeah. But I'm – or you look, what was that one of Ben Affleck and Charlie Hunnam? Triple, uh, triple Frontier? Frontier, yeah. Like, again, incredible production values, a shit ton of money put into it. It was a pile of shit at the end of a film now. That was not good. I'm not, I'm not saying Old Guy was a pile of shit. We reviewed that a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was solid. But, um, you know, it's. I think we're getting – you can see the money is being pumped into these films. Netflix has all the monies yeah. to spend on stuff. Yeah. So you can see it's happy to spend its monies on these kind of productions. I assume they're funding them and not actually just buying them off somebody else. But you can see the money's gone in. But I, I haven't seen Project Power yet. But I don't think we have seen beyond – what was the film that um, won the Academy Award? What's his name there? The Mexican director. Roma. Roma. Yes. Yeah. good. Other than that, I don't think we've seen anything of that quality since. Even I mean, I know uh, old, old guard's not trying to be Scorsese's, Roma. um Roma. Yeah, Irishman. What, I yes. haven't got around watching it because I just haven't had four hours free. Um, yeah, it's a slog, but um, you can't, you cannot deny the quality in it. I suppose, aside from films like that, which are Oscar bait, um, mm. yeah, I don't think like I mean, what would interest me would be if a Tarantino, a Christopher Nolan, mm. a James Cameron, a Steven Spielberg, that kind of like their better work. If films were kind of living up to that kind of quality. Mm. And, you know, um, with the kind of production values we're used to, I, I I still feel like a film like this or Old Guard are the kind of films that weren't good enough to be released at cinemas. I feel like we're getting um, an interesting... There's, there's a gap that is slowly bridging, but there's the, the ones that they are kind of going, we are investing literally everything we have into these to get that Oscar recognition on our platform of Roma and the Irishman. And then there's this other side, which is the kind of puff, the filler, the lackadaisical blockbuster stuff. And the quality of that is slowly getting better. And I think that we are going to see some hidden gems, not the movie hidden gems, because that was a, disaster um but like those those ones that might not have been necessarily you know bandied around in a bit of development hell production hell but they get the right people the right conditions i think that covid19 the extending of this situation i think it could potentially be very good for streaming services and that that blockbuster movie because i remember when uh, bright the will smith uh, joel edgerton movie 
was released and people were kind of saying oh it's the first major blockbuster streaming service movie fully dedicated funded produced by them and that was quite a hot mess um i think that old guard i think that project powers they you comparing those to to something like bright you can see the improvement not just in the production but the overall finish and the the collection of it it is all slowly but surely gathering um you know, you know, i feel like every time i watch one of these i just kind of feel familiar um yeah and i kind of feel like a quality like you say it quality is polished it's polished crap like i, I i'm yeah. not i haven't watched i haven't watched project power yet and i haven't watched extraction but it's kind of what i would exp- i feel like i i've already watched extraction so yeah. you make the same extraction apparently is arguably I've heard is one of their if not the most watched films on Netflix ever. Okay. okay. Um, which again explains because that's a major major movie star in Hemsworth and everybody's stuck at home. Mm. Or a lot of people are stuck at home. So it's obviously doing what it needs to do for Netflix. Mm. So we're just talking purely here in terms of quality. Yeah. I don't need to watch extraction. I feel like I've already seen it. Yeah. You know what? Um, these movies are kind of like when you get there's Coca-Cola, the the biggest brand on the planet, arguably. And then you get Coca-Cola. It's just slightly different. And it's like just different enough that they won't get sued. But you can taste the difference. It's the dollar store version of yeah. a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. I, still, I just feel like if Extraction were really good, the studio, I, I, again, I don't know if this was made specifically for Netflix mm. or something in Netflix picked up and turned around mm. or just a, a film that a studio thought, fuck it, I need to get some money for this and dumped it on a la 10, the Cloverfield Paradox. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, if it was any good, it would have, they would have hung on to it for a studio release. Sorry, yeah. a cinema release. They aren't releasing the James Bond film straight for streaming yet. They aren't releasing um, uh, Black Widow to the streaming services yet. Um, I think they're releasing Tenet. Apparently, is releasing next week in some in some territories. Yeah, uh, I do not see that actually happening. Apparently, it is. Apparently, releasing in parts of Australia prayer previews in Australia next week. Um, not Victoria, obviously. Aussies. Um, so you know. Mulan has landed on Disney Plus. It's a bit different. They've got their own streaming service. Yep. Um, but the, the actual A-grade stuff that we were expecting to come out over the last few months isn't being put on streaming services yet. So yeah. I feel like films like Extraction, films like Old Guard, if they weren't middle-of-the-road polished crap, where would have hung on for a cinema release? I think I, I'm, I'm being a bit of a complainer here. I still don't think they're quite there yet. Mm. It's. I think one of the the biggest surprises for me in this whole thing is the fact that the X Men New Breed movie is still slated <laughs> for a cinema release, and every pundit who has seen any element of that has said, "No, that's that's not going to do well." And you think that's a prime candidate to just be released streaming quietly just like oh no it came out you know you just didn't see it blah 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 and it's still there so it's like okay either they 
the studio has a lot of hope in this or it has been so retooled that the movie that the reviewers and um, the, like pre previewers saw has nothing to do with it or they just go nah it's x-men it'll still make money in the cinema that's fine it could be a legal thing potentially I've, I've, there was a Chris O'Dowd film from a couple of years ago, his name I can't remember right now, that through some sort of legal snafu, the insurance company basically seized and destroyed all the prints of a film, so it will never be seen. Oh, shit. Um, I, I can't remember the exact... There's some sort of legal jiggering that went on um, that, that led it to that, that point, but it's actually, yeah, they, they, they to basically cover some sort of payout... They, they basically have yeah, a film will the film will never never be seen wow how bizarre um, so um but those kind of things go on right um yeah it, it maybe it will be in crack who knows but um so it, <laughs> it, it could have been it could be something like that it could be some sort of legal um legal snafu considering that fox has just been bought by or, uh, disney yeah, it was it was in that weird hiatus um, where you know the the sale of um, Fox to Disney, particularly the Marvel stuff, happened just as um, uh, Dark Phoenix, I think it was, was wrapping up, and people were wondering if there was going to be an Easter egg at the end of it. No, and then it's like, oh well, there's still New Breed. Maybe they're going to um, retool it and bring it into the new MCU move series now. It's like, mm, that's been a year and a half of kicking the can down the road. It's unlikely. But, um, <laughs> I, I, I would like to see it one day. I think it's going to see it to be a bit like when Chinese Democracy came out from Guns N' Roses. It's going to be pure bloody curiosity to see exactly what this thing is. Yeah. And, you know, in, to, to Chinese Democracy's credit, it wasn't awful. It yeah, wasn't particularly good. Worst thing about it, Kind of go, what took you so fucking long? Yeah, um, it, it was kind of like, all right, if if rock and roll music was played in an elevator, that's what this would fit perfectly. That's well, probably a little bit harsh, but yeah, it's <laughs> you, sort of, you can sort of go, okay, guys, you've been working in this thing for 20 years, um, and it kind of sounds like it. Yeah, it just felt tired, you know, but anyway. Or, or you want to go the um, Duke Nukem. Right. Oh um, yeah. No. That, on, that had been sitting around for, I've been working on for like twenty years as well, and you kind of go, this film, sorry, game seems really out of date. Yeah. Hell, Fallout seventy six. Somehow it's still alive. Yeah. Those those online games, they find a niche audience, and they just, just keep on ticking. People keep going, but I'm having fun with it. I'm having fun playing with my friends, and that's well, um, they're allowed to. They are allowed to. I just keep, sometimes I get cranky at people, and they go, "Well, I had fun watching the the the, uh, the Rise of Skywalker," and I go, "No, no you, <laughs> you, you think you did, but you're wrong." The reason you guys have a reason they keep making this trick. If you keep saying it's, <laughs> if you accept mediocrity, that's all you'll ever get. And that is his presidential pitch, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Don't see shit. Otherwise, they'll think we want to see it. What have you been watching or playing or experiencing this week? Um, I spent a good chunk of a weekend um, uh, burning through a new true crime series on Foxtel. 
Okay. Uh, I'm one of those suckers who never cancelled his Fox Hill after the, the free trial, <laughs> uh, which is occasionally occasionally helpful because, like, um, this series I've been kind of interested to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then other times, like, I'm a big fan of uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Oh, yeah. And that is plays in the US on Sunday nights, which mm-hmm. is, you know, middle of the day, Australia, Monday here. Mm. Um, so I come home or come home. I, I leave the other room and come to this room <laughs> <laughs> and go, I want to watch something. It's a little bit relaxing and I enjoy John Oliver. Foxtel are the prescribed broadcaster of, of that in Australia. Yeah. They own Do you think you can watch it? No? you think it's on demand? Like if it, They go, no, no, it's on at 9.30. Really? It's 7 o'clock. I'd like to watch it now, please. They do have Last week's in the on demand, two episodes behind. Oh, for God's sake. So I don't get it. Like, I mean, I guess they make decisions. Sorry to go off on Foxtel here for a second, but <laughs> I assume they decide, I don't know how they make these decisions about what, what goes on. Maybe, again, there's maybe there's legal shit involved, but like, I would like to watch this show. It's a fairly famous show, it wins awards. Yep. It's notable. It gets write-ups in The Guardian about what they've taken the piss out of every week. Mm-hmm. But no, it's not on demand. I have to wait until it's actually on so I can watch it, which I guess 25 years ago you would have gone, that's how television works. Yeah. Um, the world has changed, Mr. Foxtel. Um, so instead I go, fuck it. I don't want to wait till 9.30. Something else is on at 9.30 I would like to watch. I will just torrent it and watch it now, please. <laughs> um, so despite the fact that I actually pay to for the service, which be legally broadcast in Australia, I end up watching it on air because they don't make it easy. Yep, that's my little round of Foxtel over and done with for now. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I have to tell you about that. Um, I the new series, the true crime series, a friend of mine in the states put me onto is called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." I'll be gone in the dark. I, I'll be gone in the dark. Okay. What's that and about? The gripping examination of the unsolved crimes of a Golden State killer who terrorized California in the 1970s and 1980s. Okay. Um, the biggest um, interesting connection for me, my, my friend in the States who put it onto me, put me onto it, um, lives in Sacramento, and that's where many of this killer's crimes took place. So um, she was like, hey, what are the crime scenes? It was around the corner from my house. I went around here to have a look, and I'm like, I would so do that. Um, <laughs> if I'm ever allowed to travel again, Sacramento will probably be on my list. In spite of fact, it's a very boring place because I have friends there, and I'd be like, let's go check out the, <laughs> let's go check out the murder houses. I do apologise to all our Sacramento listeners, all <laughs> minus one of you. <laughs> yeah, anyone who lives there knows it's not a very exciting part of the world. It's like just like travelling halfway around the world to visit Geelong. Um, <laughs> you just you, you only do it if you have a very good reason. So I'll be gone in the dark. Um, is as it says, an exploration of the Golden State Killer, who is now in custody, mm-hmm. uh, also known as the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker. Um, I guess the what makes this a little bit different is uh, it is based on a book written by um, what's her freaking name? I'm going to get her name right. Um, it's Patton Oswald's wife. Now, but I feel horrible saying that about her because she actually does have a name. I can't think of it off the top of my head because I found that the least interesting part of the show 
Um, but Pat Oswalt's wife, um, uh, Michelle McNamara. So apologies to anybody who was offended by the fact I could remember her other than the fact that she's married to Pat Oswalt. Michelle McNamara, uh, who became a bit of a minor celebrity in the true crime world. She wrote a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was released posthumously because she is passed away now. Mm-hmm. And this is based on her book. Okay. Um, where I stro- – there are six episodes. It is a mini-series. I guess they're a short series rather than a, a movie or anything of that nature. Where mm-hmm. I struggle with this is I'm a big fan of true crime. Mm-hmm. I have read a book about the Golden State Killer before. It is an interesting story in the sense it's one of those um, one of those fascinating murders where the guy, like, he fucking did a lot of crimes. He didn't kill that many people, which mm. sounds horrible. I think he killed about – yeah, four or five, five or six murders, I think. So maybe eight or nine people in total, which is a lot. Um, but you know, um, <laughs> um, but he he was incredibly prolific in terms of rapes uh, and other crimes earlier on in his career, for want of a better term. But like, okay. there are, the city of Sacramento was terrorized by this guy for years and years and years. His crime stretched over at well over a decade, I think. Uh, and somehow he wasn't he wasn't captured until um, a few years ago, just a, just a couple of years ago, he was arrested. Uh, and what what is an interesting story about how he was arrested is the way he was arrested is a fairly new development in in crime investigation, for want of a better term, in the sense that um, he left DNA at crime scenes back in the 1780s when uh, DNA didn't really, we didn't know what that was. Yeah. Um, but um, are you familiar with, like, in Australia, it's called Ancestry.com. In the States, it's called, like, 23andMe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You submit your DNA, and they tell you, hey, you've got a second cousin, and your family came from blah place. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, I, there's actually an official term for this, and I can't think of it off my head, but basically there are, there are large public databases in the U.S. I think they're based in the U.S., where it's store a lot of people's familial DNA. So what they did is they plugged this guy's DNA into that database of, you know, people who've submitted their, their DNA for, you know, their heritage testing and finding out their family tree. <laughs> and they used this public database to find out, well, this guy's not in the database, but his third cousin or something is. Okay. And then they build a family tree and go, well, he's, they've got this common ancestor who is this person, and they track it back down. And then they go, well, he was in Sacramento at this time and we think he had these characteristics and that leaves him with a short list of people who it could potentially be. Yeah. And then you just focus in on that short list of people who, you know, potentially could be the killer. And that's actually how they track this guy down. Wow. Was, um, through, through, you know, um, I, can't, I can't remember the name, but family trees and stuff like that. So um, uh, it's going to kick myself. It's going to come to me later. But um and that's a really innovative way. I'm getting to the point here, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an innovative way they caught him. It's an interesting story, but he got away with it for so long. Um, he was a horrible yet fascinating character. Okay. But what this film, the this series, sorry, focuses, I would hazard a guess, spends probably half its time on Michelle McNamara herself. I was going to say, because I'm looking at the cast thing here, and the, the first four actors, obviously Patton Oswalt um, is, is in it as himself, and every character seems to be Michelle's husband, Michelle's re- researcher, Michelle, Michelle McNamara, Michelle McNamara. It, it all seems to be focused around her. So is it 
not necessarily is, is this tangentially about the golden state killer or is this about how i wrote my book both okay it, it, it's just weird right like yeah. uh, it's a very unusual hybrid story where like i said we probably spent the film will be like sorry show will be about yeah this is a horrible crime that this guy committed and here's some archival footage of what was going on and you know mm. the standard kind of things you expect in a high quality hbo produced crime yes. documentary and yeah. then we just spend 10 minutes with Pat Oswalt talking about how he met his wife and like archival footage of Michelle talking about shit and like her family talking about how amazing she was and her talking about her childhood. Um, even though she's passed, I, I assume she, you know, as I said, you can see there, there are she had, she was a, 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 a um, prolific writer. So she wrote extensively about all sorts of parts of her, her life. And oh. those are actually read on screen, you know, journal entries and, and articles and stuff like that and blog posts. So, I actually start to get frustrated at points in time because I don't care who she is. I'm sorry. I'm sure she was lovely. Patton seems, Pat Oswald seems, you know, like he, he loved her truly and, and, and genuinely, which one would hope of your wife. Um, <laughs> and, and her late wife and that is tragic that she passed so young. Um, but I'm not watching this show. If I wanted to, if you want to make a documentary about your wife, Make a fucking documentary about call it My Wife by Pat Oswalt. Um, <laughs> you know, like don't make a story about the Golden State Killer, and then have half of it being about how awesome your wife was. And I mean, that's how it felt like to me. So this is made posthumously because the book was published posthumously. Oh. I think from memory, um, I'm pretty sure it was. And this is certainly made a couple of years after her death as well. So I'm sure. I mean, I haven't looked into it. I'm fairly certain this is a you know, uh, passion project of um, someone like Patton Oswalt, who has a fair bit of clout in Hollywood these days. Mm -hmm. um, the book itself was a bestseller. So by no means was it an obscure property that HBO decided to, to option and turn to a series. Yeah. But it, it felt like a love, as much of a love letter to his wife as it was a documentary about Killer. But some people are listening going, hey, you must be pretty fucked up to be concerned about the fact that this has got too much about how much the guy loved his wife. And yes, you would be correct. I am extremely fucked up. <laughs> a wise and astute observation, dear listener. You are <laughs> certainly a king among men. But being a horrible human being that I am, I enjoy watching and listening to crime documentaries about the crime stuff, not the actual person who wrote the book about the crime. <laughs> And about, I mean, it, 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 something I mean is interesting. It, it, they are basically kind of going. Michelle McNamara played a significant part in getting this guy caught. Okay. Now I don't know if that's true. Mm. Um, it kind and, of sounds like, oh, you know what? We're going to do a Terminator movie, and we're going to do it about the guy who created the CPU processor that isn't Niles Dyson. It's the guy that literally made the the casting mold to create the CPU. The guy who cleaned Miles Dyson's toilets the day he got shot, you know I mean? That's it. Don't give them ideas, but they will make a Miles Dyson film. They'll do it. Um, so that was, it's good in the sense the production of it is great. It's HBO. They've got, again, all the money in the world. They make high quality stuff. Mm. Um, 
the um the research is good the, the interviews are interesting when they finally get around to kill it the catching the killer is a guy named joseph d'angelo they get interviews with some very interesting they actually meet and talk to some of his family members um his ex-wife or an ex-fiance or ex-girlfriend of his some of his uh his nephew i think um maybe a brother um and it's like and that's great and i'm like wow that's interesting you actually got these guys to talk about a very infamous killer yeah um so that's good, and it's you know the archival footage is wonderful. It's the the, the research is great. The way it's it looks, it's shot is wonderful. Um, I get a real sense of place for me, having spent a reasonable amount of time in Sacramento visiting my friends who live there. I almost recognise some of the neighbourhoods. It's mm-hmm. a it's a city that has a fairly distinct look. You spend a little time there, um, but I just feel like I'd just be getting into the story and be like, oh, let's spend ten minutes talking about Michelle's childhood and how she didn't get along with her mother. Oh. I don't care. I don't care. I don't find her very interesting. Um, I, probably a very good author, good researcher, good for her. Uh, that's not what the show should be about. So it was a frustrating yin and yang. You know, whenever you get those shows or a show, like occasionally, you're like, wow, when you're actually on your main topic, you're doing very well. When you get off topic and start saying how wonderful the author who wrote the book that this is based on was, eh, it kind of would lose me. I'd get my phone out and be like, for five minutes, and be like, oh, cool, we're talking about people getting killed again. I want to watch that. Oh, shit. We have to think we've just isolated why we don't have more viewers. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a horrible human being. <laughs> because of our, yeah, just go look over here for a moment. Oh, I'm back here. <laughs> I, I, I like to think it's part of our charm. That's true. That's true. It, that's, what, that's, that's what our show is. <laughs> yeah, the show could be summed up as Squirrel. <laughs> um, that would actually be a great name for a podcast. <laughs> squirrel. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's different. If that was, a, I mean, like, I were uh, comedians and, and speakers who I enjoy that kind of thing from. Mm. In uh, If you're selling me a crime documentary, be about the crime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, no, no one likes being sold a, a false bill of goods, you know. It's like, oh, this will make you a thousand times more attractive. No, it won't. It, you, you're going to feel cheated and disappointed. And I think that if that if there's so much of the story about Michelle in this series, why not just have a passion project about her and lead it up to the creation of this book and bring it into that? Or hey. we could have had maybe the first episode, could half the first episode would have bought that. Yeah. Going, this is how the author, this is where she started. This is how she got to writing true crime. And, you know, then like moving to telling us about the Golden State Killer. I mean, maybe at, at, almost like a postscript going, this is what happened. You know, my wife died, yada, yada, yada. This has oh. almost been made a trip. It's not terrible. It's not terrible. Like my friend in the States, she loved it. Um, oh. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but if you are, do you have access to Foxtel or, or you're in another country where you have access to the HBO uh, streaming stuff, HBO Max, or it's on, you have it as a part of your cable package in the US, or oh. I don't even know what, you have access to HBO in other countries, I'm sure, via various methods. You like true crime? You can give it a go. It's pretty good. I mean, I watched all of it, um, but, you know, just... Be on guard that you're going to get a lot of fluff along with the good stuff. Yeah. All right. Good. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today, or should we uh, actually have a, a, a quick, quick 
quick it's episode this week. This is an hour tonight. Jesus Christ, what yeah, a treat. What a treat. Yeah. You should be <laughs> writing thank you letters and sending us roses. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't have anything specific to talk about. I have just downloaded Super Hot VR for my Oculus headset. Nice. I enjoyed so, that game on the regular version. I can imagine the VR being quite fun too. So I haven't had, I had a quick poke around it this afternoon. Um, I have an awkward thing in my, my, in my this is the second podcast from my new uh, residence. Mm. Uh, it's quite a long house. Uh, in the front room, we will you'll you'll get to know it, people, because that will be where we'll be, I will be podcasting once I'm set up with a new desk and everything in there. Um, but it's so far away from the back here, the Wi-Fi doesn't reach up there very well. So I have to come back here with my headset on, download the games, update it, and then walk all the way back up there. Cause I'm, I'm, <laughs> Can't you just yeah, have a long cable going? I've, I bought a Wi-Fi extender. Um, mm, and see, those see extenders that. aren't great. We will see. Uh, we will see. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to clear this room a little bit and play in here. The only problem with Super Hot is you need a fair bit of space. Yeah. You're reaching for things and dodging bullets and stuff like that. So we'll hopefully have something, at least something I can give an update on next week. Other than that, I would like to save it. Um, uh, long-term listeners, if there are any of you might remember many years ago, I was uh, working on a separate podcast project. I'm now working on two separate mm-hmm. podcast projects one will be king for a day so i feel like i'm cheating on george here you just, just go away don't pay attention um it's it's, it's fine it's it's fine i've got my D sessions that you're not invited <laughs> to <laughs> you, you change man um, uh so uh, i am going to be we're going to be trialing um some product uh some some content soon where we will be reviewing stephen king properties uh king for a day and there'll be a separate podcast currently operating under the working title Back Chat, where I will be revisiting, me and my co-host will be revisiting films from our childhood and going, do they hold up mm. to 2020 standards? And we'll be uh, providing a, a social justice warrior, feminist, uh, LGBTIQA uh, dissection of films from the 80s. So that's going to be a whole barrel of laughs. So tune in for that one. Yeah. And as for me, this. <laughs> Maybe we can have you as a guest star. Um, but uh, I have, like, I, well, I, I live alone and I still can't go out for another month. So um, I need to do something that's not playing video games or watching TV <laughs> or working. That's fair. That's fair. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. You'll allow it. Yes. The most magnanimous of you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that has been a swift episode of Armchair Producers this week. We reviewed uh, Point Break 1991 version as well as a quick uh, lambasting of the 2015 version. I talked about uh, Project Powers now streaming on Netflix. Um, Travis talked about I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO and HBO affiliated streaming services or the wonderful thing of illegal downloads. And next week in our chain movie sessions, we will be onto the 1999 classic, The Matrix. And do stay tuned because I have been want the film after The Matrix is the whole point of Point Break and The Matrix. Mm. And I've been wanting to make George watch this for years. And I have probably already made him watch it and forgotten about it, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> 
And I will. Um, I have started um, watching my way through the uh, Ip Man series with Donnie Jung. And so I will have some more thoughts on that next week. Great. So until then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And we will see you next week. Good night. Good